Yeah, God's promises are always true. Let's say that again. God's promises are always true. Amen to that. Let me pray. God, thank you. We can trust you. We can trust your word. We can trust your promises. We can trust your truth because of your character. You are a trustworthy person. Thank you for what you've promised. Thank you for what you have given us. Uh, Thank you for this time where we can open up your word, dive into your uh, scripture, your truths, your promises. I pray it would help shape our minds. I pray it would shape our our living, drive us, uh, God, through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been on a road trip? Cross-country road trip, okay? Like getting in an airplane, eating pretzels, and flying somewhere for three hours... That doesn't count. I'm talking about getting in the old family station wagon, piling in, you know, the one with the wood paneling, getting in the old family wagon, taking a Clark Griswold kind of road trip, uh, a coast-to-coast Forrest Gump style of road trip. Have you ever taken one of those kinds of road trips? You're stopping at 7-Eleven, getting Slurpees, going to McDonald's, getting Big Macs, driving for days and days Driving and driving. Now, family road trips, they're just too easy. Uh, I mean, you, you get in the minivan, right? You, you, you take the DVD, put in the seat in front of you. Kids are watching a movie, your kids are playing their little DS. You know, you're listening to your iPods, playing Angry Birds on your phone. Uh, road trips are just way too easy. I want to take us back to the day before DVD players. Well, let's go back to... Before wood paneling station wagons, I want to go a road trip through the book of Acts. Let's check out Paul's missionary journeys traveling throughout the world with the gospel. This is one intense road trip, but it's a lot of fun. This is the foundation of the church. Let's go through the book of Acts. And the first 12 chapters, big picture, the first 12 chapters describe the experience describe the formation of the early church. Here the the disciples are meeting together. Jesus has uh, resurrected. He has ascended to heaven. So now the disciples are meeting together, forming the, uh, the church in Jerusalem. And here the glory of God is coming down. This church is booming. The church in Jerusalem is growing thousands and thousands. Acts chapter 1 through 12, people are coming to Christ. Miracles are happening. Lives are changing. Baptisms, an amazing time in the history of church. And then something amazing happens. The apostles, they, they don't just stay huddled together in one centralized location. They don't just stay in their home little city of Jerusalem. They actually are witnesses of Christ, take the gospel out throughout the Roman world. The Apostle Paul was an incredible missionary, spent his life devoted to taking the gospel out throughout the world. First 12 chapters of Acts is the the formation. The last 15 chapters of Acts, Acts 13 all the way through 28, describe the expansion of the church. As Paul and the missionaries take the gospel of Christ from, from Jerusalem to Judea and then Samaria and then travel to the ends of the world, sharing, preaching Christ, making disciples, planting churches. And the last 15 chapters of, of Acts is all about the Apostle Paul's road trip throughout the world. So if we look at a map, Paul had an intense mission. 
his job was to take the gospel longer, uh, to take the gospel further than anyone else of his day. He spent 20 years traveling over 8,300 miles sharing Christ. Now imagine Paul doing this by, by sea, by, by camel, by, by real wagon, by, by horse, mules, and usually walking on foot. I mean, this, this is a serious task. I can just picture the Apostle Paul walking. Paul's going city to city day after day. Paul did not stroll. He wasn't like taking his slow and leisurely pace, just go with the flow, just kind of hang out, chill, relax, let me catch my breath a little bit. No, Paul was fast-footed, hurry-scurry, I've got a lot to do, places to be, uh, places to see, people to meet, churches to plant, lives to change. Paul was on an intense mission, day after day, city after city, traveling throughout the world. All right, are we ready? Let's go on a road trip. Paul's first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13 through 14. Here, Paul leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Antioch. He sets sail towards the island of Cyprus. Here he goes up north past Cyprus into uh, what was considered Asia Minor. He visits the cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Here he is planting a church. He is meeting with the Galatian region. The book of Galatians is written to a region of churches, not just one church. So here he travels back through Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, goes back all the way down. The Mediterranean Sea sets sail, goes back to Jerusalem, back to Antioch. Paul had an incredible journey. This is 1,400 miles that Paul traveled. But if we put this in today's context, let's take a road trip. Let's set sail from uh, Indianapolis, go out on Interstate 70, go past Terre Haute. Let's go all the way through St. Louis to Kansas City, see a whole lot of nothing in the state of Kansas. Let's go into Denver, over the Rockies. We'll go past Grand Junction, Colorado. We'll get all the way over to the border of Utah and Colorado, 1,400 more miles. That's Paul's first missionary journey. But if you've been on a road trip, you know there's always a backseat question. Are we there yet? I need your help. I need to hear the question. No, that's the first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, Paul again leaves Jerusalem, travels up north through Antioch, through the region of Galatia, visiting the churches, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, going over the mountains of Asia Minor, lands in almost Philippi, travels to Philippi, goes to Philippi, the book of Philippians, the very first church plant in all of Europe. Here, Paul is in Philippi. Then he travels back to Thessalonica, down the coast to Corinth, travels across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, now sets sail through the Mediterranean Sea, getting back home to Jerusalem. But if we put this in today's context, 2,800 miles, what does that look like? If we leave the Utah-Colorado border, if we keep driving through Las Vegas all the way down to L.A., if we go up the California coastline past San Francisco, way up Seattle, Washington, we're not going to Canada, we've got to go back east, land in Billings, Montana, that's the equivalent of Paul's second missionary journey, 2,800 more miles. What's the question? No. On Paul's third missionary journey, he leaves Jerusalem. 
Uh, he actually goes up to Antioch, goes again through Lystra, Iconium, Derby, through the region of Galatia for the third time, goes over to Ephesus, sets sail, goes up to Philippi, the second time, the book of Philippians. Then he goes to Thessalonica, all the way down to Corinth, back to Ephesus, setting sail all the way home to Jerusalem. To put this in context again, we leave Billings, Montana, we travel back through the, the Black Hills of South Dakota, all the way through Chicago, keep going, past Indianapolis, through Atlanta, we land at the South Tip Beach of Southern Miami, finally, finally, after traveling 2,700 miles... No, Paul had three missionary journeys, but the last two years of his life, he spent traveling, Acts chapter 27, 28, he was imprisoned in Jerusalem and set to stand trial in Rome. So here, Paul has to travel from Jerusalem all the way over to the capital city, Rome. Well, in the middle, as he's traveling, he is caught in a storm. He is shipwrecked. He spends a night and a day floating at sea, finally arriving on the island of Malta, being washed up on the shore. He's then taken up north, finally, finally to Italy. Finally, he gets to Rome. Last two years, he spends his life there under house arrest. Paul travels another 1,300 miles. What's this mean for us today? We leave South Beach, Miami, we travel up to Myrtle Beach, and then we head back towards Cincinnati. Finally, we get home to Indianapolis. We are there. After traveling 8,300 miles, after taking a figure eight through the entire United States from Indianapolis to L.A., to Seattle, Washington, South Beach, Miami, finally, we are there. Now imagine Paul doing this on rickety old ships, uh, on stubborn mules climbing over mountains. Imagine him walking for days and days, walking through rivers, walking that afternoon in wet clothes, sleeping under the stars. I can't imagine a cross-country camel trip would be very comfortable. Imagine Paul spending 20 years of his life traveling throughout the world doing all of that, preaching the gospel, sharing Christ, city after city, person after person, as one intense journey. Paul did this clearly. We read in 2 Corinthians, says, uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, that's an understatement, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, things he doesn't even mention, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul, considering all of that danger, all of those missionary travels, 8,300 miles, all of that, 20 years, in spite of all of that, Paul has the daily concern of planting churches, of healthy, growing, sustaining, multiplying churches. That's what Paul is about Paul devoted 20 years of his life, gave himself tirelessly 
to planting churches because that is the way he was taking Christianity, Christ the gospel, throughout the world. Grab your Bible, open up to uh, Acts chapter 18. We're going to check out the very middle of uh, Paul's um, road trip. This is the second missionary journey. This is when the gospel, for the very first time, comes to the continent of Europe here in the city of Philippi. Uh, This summer, Pastor Doug's going to be taking us through the book of Philippians, the very first church in Europe. And we're going to be looking today at the introduction of Philippians, all the way back to the very beginning. How did Paul take? How did the gospel first come to the Philippians? How was the church started? Acts 16. We're going to start in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And on the following day to Neapolis, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and, remember this, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the key word Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, key word. Where we supposed, where we assumed, there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 300 miles away. A seller of purple goods who, keyword, was a worshiper of God. This is fascinating. End of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In this passage, there are three key words that we need to kind of understand to set the stage for what's going on here. The first one is Sabbath. That's easy. It's the day of worship. But here in Philippi, there is no Christian church. The gospel has yet to come, so there's no Christian church. And so the custom was, if there were any believers in that city, they would go outside the city gates to the river. If there was a river nearby, they would meet, assemble by the river. Here, clearly says there was a small group of women meeting together by the river to pray. There was a custom, a Jewish tradition, where If there wasn't uh, at least 10 men in a city, uh, there was no recognized church. There wasn't an established church. So here we we clearly see there there aren't men, at least men who who come out to the river on the Sabbath, which would have been normal. There aren't men out there. There's just a small group of women. One of these ladies is, uh, is Lydia. And it said Lydia was a worshiper of God. That's another key word. That tells us, that's a description that Lydia was actually Jewish. Lydia was a worshiper of God, God the Father. Lydia worshiped. She was a fearer of God. Lydia would have known the Old Testament. But it's interesting. It says, and then the Lord opened up her heart. She was paying attention to what Paul was saying. And it just kind of seems like, you can almost think that, well, wait a minute. It's a Sabbath day. Lydia is with a small group of, of women. They are praying together. She, she seems to be Jewish. She, she is a worshiper of God. Why does the Lord open up her heart now? I mean, doesn't it seem like she's going through all the motions? Doesn't it seem like she's doing all the right things? It's a Sabbath. She's praying. She's with a, a group of women. She's a worshiper of God. 
And yet the city of Philippi was in Europe, 900 miles away from Jerusalem. Philippi, this lady, this Jewish woman, she knew of God. She knew of God the Father. She knew of the Old Testament. She grew up with that. But she has yet to hear of Jesus. She knew of the Messiah. She knew of this promised Savior, the Lord who was going to come from the line of King David. And yet she didn't know Jesus has already come. Paul, the very first Christian missionary to come to Europe, to come to the city of Philippi, shows up to the riverside. And imagine this. He's meeting with a small group of women and he tells them, Wait a minute, you haven't heard? Christ has come. Jesus, the Messiah, is here. Jesus has paid as a sin sacrifice. He has paid for our debts. He has paid the penalty of our sins. Christ is here. Lydia was paying attention, it says. She was carefully considering, thinking about what Paul is saying. And the Lord opened up her mind. The Lord, it says, opened up her heart. This word is, is referring to the Lord is opening up Lydia's mind. Lydia, being a, a God-fearer, a, a worshiper of God, thinking about the Old Testament, the, this sin sacrifices, thinking about the covenants, thinking about the promise of the line of David, Lydia thinking about the Old Testament, and her mind was open. She realized the Lord opened her mind. Jesus is here. Lydia becomes the very first convert in all of Europe, the first Christian in the city of Philippi. Lydia goes from being a Jewish believer to now a Jesus worshiper. Her mind is opened. Have you, uh, have you ever heard maybe someone say Christians are, are closed-minded? That, that Christians are, are narrow-minded, closed-minded, that's not, that is completely, cannot be further from the truth. That, that is a, a total lie. Actually, Christians, like Lydia, we are actually open-minded, right? The Lord has actually opened our mind to the revelation of his word. The Lord has actually opened our mind. Jesus says in the book of John that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our mind to illuminate our hearts so that we would understand what God has given us. Christians are not closed minded. We're the opposite. Christians are open minded. We have been given the truth, the divine revelation of Scripture, God's Word breathed out to us, recorded for us. God has opened our mind to who He is, what He has done, and what He will do through the truth of His Word. We're not a closed-minded, narrow-minded group of people. It's the opposite. We're actually open-minded with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, understanding what God has given us. And that's why God calls us to read his word, to, to study his word, to engage the scripture with our minds, to think about it, to defend it, to understand it, God calls us to hide his word in our hearts so that we would not sin against him. God calls us to season our conversations, to, to have God's word on the tip of our tongue, to have it on the forefront of our mind. He says in Deuteronomy that, that when we wake up in the morning, we should be thinking about it. That when we walk around on the road, we should have God's word. When we sit at the table, we should have God's word. When we lay down at night, 
Again, we should have God's word. God has called us to engage our minds to open up the truths, the promises, the always true promises of his word with an open mind. The Lord has done this. He has sent his spirit to illuminate, to open up what he has given us. God calls us to be in his word. And just like Lydia, everything, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the world around us as creation, everything makes sense when you see it from the framework of Christ. It all goes back to Jesus. The author, the sustainer, the creator, all things are held together by Christ, just like Lydia. When we see Christ, everything makes sense. Who we are, who God has called us to be, how we perceive ourselves, it all goes back to Christ. So the Philippian church begins here in Acts 16 with one Christian woman. Goes from a Jewish believer of God to now a blood-bought, believing follower of Jesus because of the gospel. Lydia, one businesswoman, a seller of purple goods from Thyatira, one lady with an open heart. Keep going, verse uh, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So there's a slave girl. She's got some kind of an evil spirit. Maybe this is a demon possession. Maybe it's a uh, demon uh, oppression. Some kind of an evil spirit is residing on this woman, but it gives her the supernatural ability to predict, to foretell the future. Apparently, her fortune-telling business is pretty good. She's making a lot of gain. She's making a lot of money for her owners. Well, she followed Paul and us, verse 17, crying out, This is a a crazy uh, demon-possessed, a woman filled with an evil spirit, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. She kept doing this repeatedly for many a days. How annoying would that be? This lady following you saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Having done this for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. It's not like it took 60 minutes to come out. It came out that very hour. There's, uh, there's actually one word in this text that's it's a little bit different. It's been deliberately removed from our pages of Scripture. It's a subtle nuance, a slight change. Something has slipped away here. And I think the, the way we actually view Christianity, the way Paul understood himself and his relationship to God was, was rooted in this word. Something is a little bit different Let me repeat this verse, uh, reinserting this word, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Hmm. I checked 26 different Bible translations 
Do you even know there's that many translations? I checked 26 different Bible translations. Only one translation had the word slave of the Most High God. Every other translation said servant, or maybe said bond servant, or like the message said worker. Does anybody have a Holman Christian Standard Bible? We had one in the first service. Does anybody have that? Raise your hand. Any have a Holman Christian Standard Bible? Turn it over, look. No, it's an obscure translation that nobody has. One person from Harvest has. But all the other translations, the other 25 translations, they all say servant, a bond servant, like the New American Standard Version says a bond servant, but there's a difference between being a servant and being a slave. When this was written, when this was read, Paul considered himself, even this slave girl considered them to be a slave of the most high God. Isn't it interesting in this context that Bible translators could have interpreted this, this slave girl who was being demon possessed and oppressed by her wealthy owners to be a slave, but they didn't say the same thing about Paul. They didn't title him as a slave, even though that is what he considered himself to be. Paul did not think of himself as a Christian. Paul thought of himself as a slave to God. We've completely lost this. Uh, the Bible, there's a whole metaphor describing our relationship to the Lord. It says that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been ransomed. We have been redeemed. You cannot serve two masters. Well done, my good and faithful slave. The most common way the Bible actually refers to us is not Christians. It's slaves. And that is so foreign to how we view ourselves. That is so out of this world of how we think of our relationship to the Lord. And yet that's what the Bible says. That is the most common way it refers to us. In the Old Testament, 250 times the Old Testament believers are referred to as slaves. The New Testament, 124 times believers are referred to slaves. So on occurrences alone, we're talking about 374 times believers are referred to as slaves and we're labeled Christians three, twice in Acts, once in Peter. Three times we're called Christians. 374 times we are called slaves. And yet this is just so foreign to us. This is not how we view ourselves. It's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? We just don't think like this. We have a whole history of what we think slavery is like. We have a whole hidden history and in Britain, in, in America, the, the west coast of, of Africa. There's a whole history behind this, and ew, we just don't talk about that. That's what Paul considered himself to be, a slave to the Most High God. Not a Christian, a slave. Verse 18, she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, uh, turned and said to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And it came out of her that very hour. But when the owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. True. And they are disturbing our city. Not really. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Yeah, probably. See, the reason these slave owners, they are mad. Well, it's because their fortune business is over. They are going to be out great gain. They're going to lose their money. And so they are mad, but they spin this whole situation. So they take Paul and Silas to the magistrates and accuse them of being Jews. There's nothing wrong with being Jewish. Nothing uh, against the, the criminal laws of that. But then they say these men advocate certain customs, practices that we as Romans, we can't accept. We can't practice. So what's really the charge here? Well, what are Paul and Silas actually guilty of? Well, it's simple. Paul believed in one Savior, right? One Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul, he believed in one king. But the problem with this is there in Philippi, the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and the emperor of Rome, well, he had that same title for himself. Caesar, the emperor of Rome, had the same title. He called himself the Lord, the Savior. And so for the apostle Paul to not bow down to the emperor, but to bow down and worship Jesus Christ as the only Lord, the only Savior, the only King, Paul could have been guilty of treason. He's not bowing down to the emperor. So here are these, these slave owners. They, they spin this, this whole situation. They're mad they're out their money. And so what they're really trying to do is accuse Paul and Silas of advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans. They're, they're trying to present a case to the magistrates saying these guys are presenting a gospel that is anti-Roman. It's illegal. This was an offensive message to the Roman city. Guilty. Paul and Silas were presenting this message. So verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore off uh, garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Remember this, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Wow. And the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing, assuming the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Just imagine this. If there was a prison break, the jailer, the guard, he was responsible. He was given orders to secure them safely. And so if there was a prison break, if the, if the criminals got out, he would have been executed. 
You've just got to imagine, you just have to think that if there is an earthquake, somehow all of the locks to the cell doors are magically opened. The bonds, the stocks, the chains, everything on the prisoners in the inner cell, all the cells, if all of that just falls off because of an earthquake, you've got to think, you've got to assume that these prisoners are out of here. Why would they stay in their cell? Not Paul and Silas. The other guys, the, the guys who were actually probably guilty of whatever thing that they were in for jail for. But they're all there, all sitting, all listening, Paul and Silas singing hymns. You just put yourself in a situation, just see what's going on. And here there's this scared, this suicidal jailer runs back into the cell. It's dark. He can't see the people. He's got to think they're all gone. There's open doors. He pulls a sword out. He's about to kill himself. And Paul's like, hey. We're still here. We're we're still here. We're still worshiping. We haven't left. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he baptized and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a great story. It's the middle of the night. God is at work in this prison cell. What would you do if somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to be saved? Uh, for me, there's, there's two things in verse 32. It says, speak the word of the Lord. Or maybe for you, you're considering that question. Really, what must you do? What, what must I do to be saved? Read the word of the Lord. He says, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm all about sharing Christ in a a very clear, a very concise way, a childlike faith, a simple way. And yet, I think we kind of tend to be too much of a casual Christian. And it's all about just reciting the ABCs of the gospel. You know, all you've got to do to be saved is, is, is accept you are a sinner, A. And, and B, believe Jesus died on the cross. And C, confess Jesus is your Lord. And that's a part of it. That's what Paul says here. Believe and you will be saved. That is certainly a part of it. Except to believe and confess. And yet that's not the end all be all. That, that is the proper response. That is the answer to that question. But that doesn't explain the ongoing life of what it means to follow Christ. Coming to Christ Repenting, coming to Christ is a completely new change of thinking, of living, of reorienting our entire life, our passions, our perspective, our purpose. Everything becomes different. Uh, The gospel is so much more than just kind of changing a few things around and and adding Jesus to a part of your, your day. No, the gospel requires us to reorient, to reposition our entire selves before Christ. 
The gospel requires total surrender, total devotion. And so to share Christ with somebody, we need to share the word of the Lord. We need to speak the word of the Lord. We need to read the word of the Lord. And this is the whole counsel of scripture, not just a couple easy to believe verses, but camping out on key truths of scripture from creation through the exodus of when God calls his people slaves out of Egypt, working through sin sacrifices and and all of that. What is that even about? Of, of working through the gospels, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, seeing the truths unfold in all of scripture, opening up our minds to all of God's word, studying it, understanding it, working through it. It's so much more than just the ABCs to believe. We need to pray that the spirit would illuminate us, would open up our minds to the truths of his word. And second thing Verse 32 says that that Paul and Silas, they they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who are in his household. And what if we did that? Somebody ever comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? Ask them this. Let's go back to your house. Let's go back. Let's find your family. Let's get everybody together. Let's sit down and I will share the gospel. I will walk through all of scripture, the whole council of scripture, sharing what Jesus is from this word, not just with the person, not just with the individual, but the whole family. That would be an amazing shift in in bringing lives to Christ, not just an individual personal, but a, a family event of sharing the truth of his word. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison, and now, do they now throw us out secretly? No, 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 let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. This is huge for the launch of the Philippian church. Paul had one humble priority. Paul's mission was taking the gospel to the world. He did this by planting churches just like Philippians. But he knew the trouble that he had just stirred up by not bowing down to Caesar, but bowing down to Christ. Christ is the Lord and the Savior. Paul knew this trouble he had just stirred up had made the gospel essentially illegal, anti-Roman. Paul knew if he would just secretly slip out, if he would just leave the city now, this church would have no chance. Uh, This church would have no chance of surviving. There's just a couple families from Lydia and the jailer If Paul secretly leaves now, the whole reputation of the church was founded on a uh, missionary pastor who was a criminal. That's not going anywhere. So here, Paul, 
one humble priority, he allowed himself to be beaten by rods in the marketplace, to be sentenced to a night in prison, and he was never given the right to defend himself. He was never given a trial. He he was never given a, a right to explain who he is, what's going on. And now there's a knock on the door. They want to quietly release him. And Paul's like, no, I am a Roman citizen. You have just illegally beat me. You have just illegally imprisoned me. And now you want me to just walk out on my own secretly? Get out of here. No, I know my rights as a Roman citizen. I have the right to a trial. I have a right to defend myself. I have a right that you have not allowed. You have illegally punished me. I'm not leaving until you walk out with me in front of the whole city, proving my innocence, helping this church plant. Paul had one priority, not his comfort, not his own agenda, but helping this church getting off on the right foot so we could spread the gospel throughout this city and I'm sure the, uh, the magistrates, the officials, the authority, I'm sure they weren't supportive of the Philippian church, but at least now, they were going to be tolerant of it. There, there would be a little measure of grace, a little bit of favor, because this church has a huge story of how it happened in the beginning, of how it started. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Turn over to the book of Philippians. We're going to check out the first two verses here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. From this church plant, Philippians becomes Paul, his favorite church of all of his missionary journeys. From the New Testament, the Philippians, we see their love, we see their friendship. They were a generous church, a supporting church, a church that gave to Paul, helping him in his missionary journeys, partnering with Paul in an incredible way, taking the gospel to the world. Philippians is a, is a close friend to Paul. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants, of Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. I know my Bible says servants. What do you think it says? Slaves. If you have a Bible, maybe look down. You might see a little uh, funny number there. Look down. See if you have any footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, in the middle of your Bible. Does it say slave? Some do. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Usually, Paul titles himself as an apostle. And so we see that in, uh, in Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Thessalonians, Paul says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, he is emphasizing his apostleship. He's emphasizing his authority. He's saying, hey, you better listen up to what I have to say. I am an apostle. But here, he says, I am a slave to Christ Jesus his title is the complete opposite. It's not apostleship, it's a slave. We need to be careful we don't read our own experiences in American history back into the text. And actually, American and British scholars and Bible translators, interpreters, have have changed this because of that. 
And I can understand why they don't want a, a new Christian to be reading through the Bible and see all these slave terms. That's offensive. Uh, to see all these, these slave words, associate the negative stigma of slavery with, with us. Makes sense. I can see that. I understand. I get why this word is written different. But this word means slave. The word doulos means slave, not servant, not bond servant, not worker. Like the message, it means slave. That's what Paul considered himself to be. That's what he titled himself. And this is just so foreign to us. This is so against our nature of who we view ourselves to be before Christ. The word doulos appears 124 times in the New Testament. Only one time it's actually translated correctly as slave. The others, servant. But what's crazy is there's actually six words that mean servant and doulos is not one of them. Doulos means slave. Paul is a slave to Christ. There's a difference. A servant is hired. A slave is owned. Slaves have no freedom. Uh, no choice in who they work for. They are bought, they are property, they are possession. Slaves don't have rights, no privileges. And the Bible uses this metaphor as, as being a slave to Christ more than anything else to describe our relationship to the Lord. We are ransomed, redeemed, bought, we are owned, we are purchased by his blood. Christ is, is not just calling us to following him and becoming a disciple after him and being committed to him. Christ is calling us to total surrender, absolute devotion. Being a slave, I'm not trying to make it easy, but it was actually very simple. You only had to do one thing, please your master. It all went back to that. Obedience, it wasn't a choice, it was actually required. And this is why this metaphor fits. God wants our total devotion, every ounce of our being. God wants our complete surrender to live for him, die to ourself. The gospel is not just, hey, let's just go hang out with Jesus. The gospel is a decision to allow Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sin, to die for us on our behalf, paying our debts. By his blood we were purchased, and that means he owns us. Christ owns us. Uh, we're his. We just don't even think like that. We think first of our rights, our privileges, our freedoms, our independence. We think that. Not that we are a property of Christ. Walking down the street of uh, Philippi or Rome, there's no difference really between a slave and a free person. Same work, same responsibilities, same clothes. Slaves could be doctors, they could be teachers, cooks, work in the government. There really was no difference. Everything hinged on one fact, who your master is. And there were cruel, abusive, oppressive masters, but there were also very generous and kind and caring, loving masters. It all came back to who was the identity of your master. That's why this fits. That's why this works. That's why Paul says we are a slave of Christ because Christ is our master. 
And if we view Christ as our master, we actually can achieve a better life. Uh, There is actually more uh, honor and respect within society, more of a, a position of status because Christ, we are in the company of the king. That is our greatest benefit, our greatest honor. That is our blessing. Our whole life's work is devoted to pleasing our master. He owns us. He has bought us. And yet this this one word, subtly, deliberately, has been stripped away from most of our Bibles. And it's so lost in our conscience of how we view our relationship to the Lord. We like to think of ourselves as sons of God, and the Bible says that. But there's more to it. Paul writes in Romans that we were once slaves to sin, but now in Christ we are slaves to righteousness. Galatians, he writes, we're no longer slaves, period. We are now sons being adopted as God's sons. But that's kind of only one side of the coin. We're still slaves. Yes, we're sons, God's children, but we're still slaves. God calls us to pleasing him, life's obedience, our entire work devoted to him Surrendering to him, it's all about him. Living for him. That's the metaphor that Paul uses to describe our relationship to the Lord. And yet we just miss that. It makes us feel pretty uncomfortable when we start talking about losing our rights, our, our own desires, our, our own passions, our own abilities. When we start talking about that, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable. That's where Paul sees himself. That's where Paul sees us. That's how Paul challenges us to live. Yeah, as the sons of God, but also obedience as the slave of God. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are challenging our thinking. You, you are challenging, are confronting the way we view ourselves, the, the way we have grown up thinking who we are. God, I, I pray, it's a little bit hard to know how to respond. I, I pray, God, that you would use this text, this passage, this title, help us to respond to you in a way that pleases you, That's obedient to you. I pray that we would submit and surrender our decisions to you. God, I pray that in our life that we would more than just commit. God, that we would be sold out, that we would be highly devoted. All about you. God, would you do an amazing work in our life where it's no longer even about us. Remove us. God, may we live for you in a new, fresh way way because you are the master the gracious the compassionate the forgiving the kind the loving the forbearing the lord the savior the king god when we begin to view you like that when we begin to view less of ourselves god you're going to do an amazing work in this place 